Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1358. I'm Rob Chan and our co-pilot Megan McHugh is having some well-earned microphonically distanced shore leave today. And today's show title is Space Lane 99. Our podcast title is The Pod Life. Now, on this day in alternative sci-fi history, which is to say the 13th of September back in 1999, Moonbase Alpha in the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson science fiction TV series Space 1999 began its incredible odyssey through time and space when nuclear waste dumps on poor old Luna inexplicably detonated, blasting the moon out of Earth orbit to cruise amongst the stars for two seasons back in real time in 1975 to 1977. Rather begging the question of why a blast that powerful didn't just fragment the moon outright and since presumably it wasn't an ongoing thrust pushing it up to even puny light speed, why doesn't the moon take anywhere near like the years it should travel to a plot-friendly plethora of other star systems? But sail on. I've read some well-crafted Space 1999 tie-in fiction. I'm looking at you, Edwin Charles Tubbs. Uh, which smoothly retconned that rather ludicrous premise by having the massive explosion create a space warp that the moon fell through, facilitating its rapid transition across space. So there's that. (laughs) Still, fun times and lots of fond memories for what was actually in its first season, at least, and aspirationally rather more cerebral science fiction space series and others. Lashes of lovely Thunderbird-style model work and visual effects and some fun costuming and great set design and a killer soundtrack by Barry Gray. And, well, here it is. Space 1999, an extended alternate version from the Space 1999 Year One CD. Strap on your disco space boots. Hey, this is Craig Charles, Dave Listed off Red Dwarf. You're listening to Space Core Directive 3 Triple R FM. So smeg and get on with it. Yeah, Barry Gray's main title theme from Space 1999, with a bit of a an alternate sort of perspective thrown in there from the Space 1999 Year One CD soundtrack album. Barry Gray, very well known for his collaborations with Jerry Anderson from Thunderbirds through Captain Scarlet and Joe Ninety, amongst others. All right, onwards with today's episode of Zero G. Happy Space 1999 day to all you lunatics, September 13th. Speaking of geek days, last week's September the 8th is now Star Trek Day, 
And that is, that day marked the 55th anniversary of the first broadcast of original Star Trek in 1966. Now, there was a cheerful online celebration of that last week, wherein much fun was had and several interesting announcements made in the Star Trek universe. Now, with nine television series, including two animated ones and 13 movies under its space belt, Star Trek keeps on adding to its small screen phaser cannon, with two more series upcoming, not including the proposed Section 31 with Michelle Yeoh at the helm. That's a Star Trek Black Ops series. Now, that was spun off Star Trek Discovery. And by the way, the animated series Lower Decks is the really deep-cut Star Trek parody on Amazon Prime that we mark time with Seth MacFarlane's equally well-crafted The Orville. And no shade there, that's an excellent series in its own right, and no slouch when it comes to Easter-egging Star Trek with subtle and not-so-subtle references. Now, This new series, Star Trek Prodigy, is the third animated series, and this time it's reliant on CGI. And it's basically about a band of teenagers. Yes, this is a younger Star Trek fan gateway series, uh, and they board and later travel around in the abandoned Federation starship USS Protostar. Now, this is slated for a release on October the 28th on Paramount's new streaming service, Paramount Plus. They've got 10 episodes in the dry dock, and it features the voice of Kate Mulgrew, who was Catherine Janeway in Star Trek Voyager. Now, she's playing an emergency command hologram, not unlike that of the Doctor in Star Trek Voyager itself. And I hear, speaking of that show, that Robbie Beltran, who played Chakotay in Voyager, will be a guest voice actor as well. They've also got Jason Mantzoukas, who is playing the voice of a Tellarite in this show. We know him from Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where he played Adrian Pimento and The Good Place, where I think he was the sort of idealised version of Janet's boyfriend. (laughs) All right, we've also got in it John Noble, Australian actor who we have seen before on Fringe and in the uh, action horror series Sleepy Hollow. I think you'll probably remember him most as Denethor in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. But he has also been recently seen in Elementary playing Sherlock Holmes's father. He's going to be a villain taking a leaf from Ricardo Montalban's Khan Nunian Singe in this story, Star Trek Prodigy. Now, the other new Star Trek series that we've also heard about is Strange New World, uh, which is a live-action series, again, spun off from Disco, which reintroduced the adventures of the Starship Enterprise under an earlier commander before James T. Kirk, which is to say Captain Christopher Pike. And that's set to launch in 2022, again on Paramount+, Plus. rather like uh, Disney+, Plus. they're trying to concentrate all of their Star Trek content there. Disney has all of its MCU and Star Wars content. Now, Anson Mount is reprising his role as Christopher Pike. Rebecca Romagen is playing 
her character again of number one. This time she's actually got a name, Una Chin Riley, instead of just a rank designation. And Ethan Peck will once again be Mr. Spock, or young Spock, as it were, from the Discovery series. Now, Babs Olusan Mukan is playing Dr. Mbenga, who we do know from the original Star Trek series, I mean, way back, and we've seen that actor before play a character in Black Mirror, as well as Marvel's Netflix series, The Defenders, and you can look to him to play the character of Jarmus in Dune, whenever it makes it to its screen. We also have Christina Chong playing... Lan Nunian Singe, speaking of Khan, obviously a relation perhaps. We've seen her also in Black Mirror and in the Doctor Who episode uh, Good Man Goes to War, where she played the character of Lorna Bucket, another original Star Trek character being revived here, is uh, Cadet Nyota Uhura, and she'll be played by Cecilia Rose Gooding, echoing the original casting of Michelle Nichols. She's a, a US-American actress and singer. Jess Bush, Australian actress from Home and Away, is going to play Nurse Christine Chapel in this new Star Trek series. Strange New World. Get it done. Make it so. Now, speaking of Star Trek in the Radiothon episode of Zero G, where we were riffing off the theme of it's your space station. We played quite a few space station hits. I've got a full book of those for today to play as well. And it's sort of related to our general space theme today. So I thought we'd play Dennis McCarthy's magnificent theme for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Now this is a full bells and whistles concert version and this is from the Space and Beyond compilation album with Nick Rain and the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. And this really does kick out all of the jams, or in this case, the Rob Jans here on Zero G. Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? <laughs> Dennis McCarthy's main title theme from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and that came off the Space and Beyond compilation album. Alrighty. What if is the question to ask? We've been watching that animated series on Disney+. Plus. Every Wednesday, a new episode drops, which seems to be the way they like to do things rather than binge them all at once. Uh, we're now five episodes in on this one. Its premise is counterfactual, which is a, an old science fiction and fantasy trope, changing points in history, fictional history in this case, which uh, has been famously used before, for example, in, he says, reaching out there uh, in Star Trek to reboot the entire franchise, or a chunk of it at least, into a parallel timeline for the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. Uh, it's often used to ask what would happen, for example, in a show if the characters were evil, as in the Star Trek Mirror Universe. And Marvel Comics did this originally in 1977, uh, where they had Uatu the Watcher, uh, who was a super being who could watch, as the name implies on the box, and he could not interfere with things, although sometimes he kind of did. 
But anyway, Jeffrey Wright plays the voice of the Watcher in this new Marvel animated series, and he's asking that basic question and narrating the answer. Back in the comic book, uh, I think the first one was, what if Spider-Man had joined the Fantastic Four? That kind of thing. So in, in the five that we've seen so far, we've had, what if Agent Peggy Carter had taken the Super Soldier Serum instead of Steve Rogers? So instead we had uh, a still puny Steve piloting the Hydra Stomper power armor, which was created by Howard Stark back in World War II in this reality. Uh, this is one we'd love to see continued with Hayley Atwell and Dominic Cooper reprising their roles from the Agent Carter series and some of the movies. The second episode posed the question, what if T'Challa, the Black Panther King from the Afrofuturist realm of Wakanda, if he had been taken into space by the space pirate Ravagers instead of Peter Quill, and he became an actual competent Star-Lord, one who could persuade Thanos not to embark on his mad Infinity War, and who was widely respected and known across the universe. This was quite funny and also bittersweet, because it is, of course, one of Chadwick Boseman's last performances as T'Challa before his tragic death. Now, another one had, what if the Avengers were assassinated before they could famously assemble? And this reflected what Nick Fury was doing in that particular busy week that we know from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Again, another startling story. Equally unsettling was, what if Doctor Strange had made some really bad choices? so bleak and it reminded me that the what if format is ideal for going places where the mcu proper might not want to tread (laughs) shades of the loki television series last week's one was what if marvel zombies simply titled now i'm overly familiar with the marvel zombies comic book source material and this was gruesomely great i thought it was a a more spot-on adaptation of its literary inspiration than, say, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is of its original spoof novel, which I'm still annoyed at for abandoning the whole Ninja vs. Shaolin subplot that so enjoyably sent up Pride and Prejudice's original class struggle. But never mind, the Marvel Zombies one was a hoot and a groan and a shuffle and all those other zombie tropes. And, you know, I think this is, again, one that they could easily spin off into a animated series, as they very well did with comic book after comic book. Robert Kirkman had something to do with the original Marvel Zombies comic books, quite a bit, actually, and we do know him very well from The Walking Dead. Anyway, more episodes of... Marvel's What If coming up soon on Disney Plus. This is George Romero, and I wouldn't be caught dead listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Now, speaking of The Walking Dead and its various spin offs. I've been watching season 11, which is the final season of this long-shanked shuffling show over on Binge. You can also get it on Apple TV+. Plus. Ah, so much streaming, so little time. 
Now, there have been plenty of Zomcom television series, as we've discussed before on Zero-G. Santa Clarita Diet, iZombie, Zomboat, Dead Set, and even Daybreak. Now, one of them, Z Nation, even created an undeadly serious prequel, Black Summer, which was much more like The Walking Dead, now in its 11th season. It's got its own two spin-offs, Fear the Walking Dead and World Beyond, which is more of a sequel. It takes place afterwards and shows what happens to, like, the next generation of survivors. Now, The Walking Dead is a long-term post-apocalyptic comic book series, as we were saying before, writer Robert Kirkman and Tony Moore, the artist, as well as uh, Charlie Adlard doing the art later on. Well, it was a big hit back in the day. It's uh, finished off in 2019, and it inspired The Walking Dead television show. Even if the character runs and the arcs are not necessarily the same or deployed in quite the same order, it is obviously the git of the original comic book. Now, in the season 11 of The Walking Dead, we're getting basically the arc from, let's say, about... uh, issue 175 into 190 of the comic book. So really this one focuses upon how everyone gets on when they encounter the Commonwealth. Ironically, this series was delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic, which is very meta, and they've soldiered on, quite literally in this case, since there are soldiers in this one, And I'm three episodes into season 11, which is, I think, enlivened by them breaking out of the siege of the Alexandria community. And that format uh, had to focus upon them being pinned down, basically, by the Whisperers. (laughs) Those are the nasties who were... Human beings, but hardly normal ones, they were getting around wearing zombie faces all the time so they could blend into the horde and control them. Anyway, a group known as the Reapers appear, and they're kind of like the saviors, only on acid, I reckon. I don't know. Uh, They're also the colony that I mentioned before called the Commonwealth, which has some serious technology remnant from before the fall and they're resource heavy they've got high-tech body armor and lots of still functioning vehicles and seemingly quite a large supply of ammunition things that the alexandria community has lacked for a while and i guess that interactions with both the reapers and the commonwealth are pretty much key to the 11th and final season Uh, I was saying that they'd up the zombie aspect of it because it all gets a bit uh, predictable and a bit too routine with fighting the zombies. Obviously, the survivors have been doing this for a very long time. They've gotten quite matter-of-fact about it, but it's still possible to be surprised by the walkers in this show as they amply demonstrate in a particularly creepy underground train tunnel sequence as well as a particularly horripilating descent into a forgotten but not uninhabited army base. I don't know why you do that just to get meals ready to eat, but, you know, any port in a storm, I suppose. 
All right. Other elements in the 11th and final season, of course, is Maggie having to work with Negan, who years ago brutally killed her partner, Glenn, when they were battling the saviours. Carol still trying to work out her massive overburden of guilt. And I suppose that we will get to see what happened to Rick Grimes seven years ago, more or less in the show's continuity, who was scooped up and magicked away. So it's The Walking Dead Season 11. I'm enjoying it more than some of the recent series. I think it's got some of its morbid mojo back. Now it's in the home straight, as it were. Gosh, what an age we live in where television is overpopulated by zombie television shows. No wonder most of them have decided to go the satirical route. I want to play another track here from our Triple R, it's your Space Station Radiothon theme. And in this case, it will be a track from one of the great Space Station movies, Andrei Tarkovsky's 1972 Solaris, adapted rather freely from Stanislaw Lem's novel of the same name. So here we go, docking with Station from the Solaris soundtrack by Eduard Atameyev. This is Robin Williams, creator of The Science Show, and you're listening to Zero G on Triple R FM. A track from Andrei Tarkovsky's 1972 classic science fiction film, Solaris. And that particular track was by Eduard Artemeyev, who we also know for composing the soundtrack of Tarkovsky's other great science fiction movie, Stalker. Great if cryptic. Once again, riffing off our 2021 Triple R Radiothon theme, interpreted as It's Your Space Station. Righto, blasting off now with a comprehensively confronting and disturbing, and perhaps you may find, as did I, by parts challenging and provocative science fiction movie that falls into the always uneasy abyss in the crossover genre of space horror. It's a multinationally produced 2018 movie, directed and co-written by French director Claire Denis, and this is her first English-language film. Now, you may know Denis for her excellent 1999 movie about the French Foreign Legion, Beau Travail, and other films like Trouble Every Day, White Material, and 1988's exploration of French colonialism in Africa, Chocolat, confused at your peril with the Lasse Hellstrom's identically titled 2000 comedy-drama Chocolat, although the latter also stars Juliette Binoche, as does High Life. Denise shares screenwriting credits for High Life with her frequent collaborator Jean-Paul Fargeau. And here's the capsule synopsis of the plot. A handful of defro convicts supervised by nominally higher in the pecking order, but equally, or perhaps even more, criminal trustees. Well, they volunteer to journey far into space, aboard a ship tasked with exploring a black hole. As if this wasn't perilous enough, they must also endure the dodgy ministrations of a largely unethical doctor who runs her by turn sedated patients through a series of psychosexual experiments whose ultimate goal is 
perhaps to produce a baby who can survive, amongst other things, the radioactive rigours of long-term spaceflight. Now, I saw this on Madman single-disc DVD with no extras, running time an economical 114 minutes. It's also available for rent streaming on Apple+. Plus. And I will take note here right now that High Life is rated MA15+, plus, restricted, with strong themes of sex and violence. So, this is not a film for the kiddies. Now, High Life is an unusual space oddity, and no mistake, I can and will fire a laser beam through a genre prism of easy comparisons, but they're ultimately not quite accurately targeted fellow space traveller movies. And we're talking about Andrei Tarkovsky's 1972 cinematic masterpiece Solaris, uh, perhaps or perhaps not, a too elliptical adaptation of Stanislaw Lem's signature science fiction novel of the same name. And indeed, there are several other Soviet space movies where the crew are placed under peculiar pressures that this film reminds me of. Also, there are definitely elements that feel very Kubrick-esque, 20 years on from the now retro-futuristic setting of his iconic Tour de Space Force 2001 A Space Odyssey. And would it be wrong of me to even name-check the more suitable for television, but still ground and, indeed, law-breaking dystopian pleasures of Blake Seven, the influential 1970s British space adventure series, which is so counter-toned to early Star Trek with its fractious crew of mismatched space convicts. We are not, I should add with some relief, nearly as far down the feral space wormhole with high life as, say, director Christian Alvart's gruesomely effective 2009 British-German Lovecraftian trope film Pandorum, or the lesser, and to me, inexplicably popular, Paul W.S. Anderson's Event Horizon from back in 2008. At the end of the endless space day, High Life is none of these other films, but ultimately its own unique and, fair warning, a quite gruelling, emotionally confronting tale. Now, to zero in on some technical aspects, Denis rounded up some expert advice from noted physicist and philosopher Aurelien Barreau about black hole physics in particular. It's not interwoven in the story as essentially tightly as, say, Christopher Nolan did in Interstellar and his take on those enigmatic celestial phenomena, but it does orbit through Denis' harrowingly gruelling spaceflight to deft and telling effect when it needs to. The black hole is spectacularly rendered in all its gravity-crunching mystery in high life, and I wonder... Barrow maintains an ethical stance on a number of social justice issues, and perhaps the physicist contributed to High Life's internal engagement with human rights issues. As the prisoners' mission certainly began with the proverbial offer that they couldn't refuse, but which maybe they might have reconsidered if they'd known more about what the actual mission involved. I mentioned some more highfalutin cosmic roving genre movies earlier, and by Contrast, I'm also put in mind by the travel-worn, hard-used look of the ship and its stressed, if sedation-weary crew. 
of some much less grandiose but nevertheless worthy competitors in the fictional space race, like Corey Maccabee's 2001 eclectic space western musical, yes, you heard that right, The American Astronaut and its brother-in-grime descendant 2009's Stingray Sam, which also features space convicts. And hey, we're not a million hard light years in tone down the trajectory from the seminal 1974 planet-killing comedy, John Carpenter's Dark Star. Only very much without the genuine chuckles that both Maccabees and Carpenter's films so wonderfully generate. Icelandic Danish artist Olafur Eliasson, whose work often incorporates elements of both the terrestrial and extraterrestrial environments, designed the remarkable practical-looking spacecraft for high life. And I'm guessing here maybe had something to do with the aesthetics of some of the spacescapes as well. The ship, with none of the lyricism or anthropomorphism of most ocean-going vessel names, is clinically known only by its serial number, 7. It's a chillingly pragmatic exercise in functional brutalism that wouldn't look out of place in, say, a collection of Soviet monumental architecture, or indeed outside of the brick-like demolition ships of the Vogon constructor fleet from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you set it down on the corner of Flinders Street and Swanston Street here in Melbourne as the old gas and fuel, well, <laughs> it would blend right in. So it would be a mistake to look at this flying tower block and think this was designed by someone with no poetry in their soul. They do have poetry, but it's Vogon poetry, you know? And while I'm on the subject of space design, although costumer Judy Shrewsbury certainly nails the coldly institutionalised look of the prisoners off the shelf clothing, I'm a little bit half in and half out of the airlock when it comes to the inevitable spacesuits conjured up for this movie. Now, they look about as low cost as I'd expect, but well, maybe a little bit too simplistic, and they have no visible means of life support which is to say no backpacks for oxygen tanks and the like, in that they're certainly not alone amongst space movies, but I am mm, ambivalent. The technology on display in high life is clearly quite advanced by implication, but is it as advanced as, say, Starfleet's in Star Trek First Contact, where the spacesuits also have no obvious visible means of life support? But it's Federation technology, which is often indistinguishable from magic. So there's that. Let's have a track from High Life, its main title, by Stuart A. Staples. And this is from the soundtrack by a frequent collaborator of Claire Denis. Hi, this is Corey Maccabee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. The main title for Claire Denis' 2018 science fiction space horror movie High Life, done by English musician and composer Stephen A. Staples, who's affiliated with the indie band Tender Sticks and has worked quite a bit with Claire Denis. Some long, low, evocative notes there. Not that many parsecs removed from the soundtrack for Solaris, an excerpt of which we played earlier on. All right, on to the players in High Life. 
Now this movie opens with a scene which is quite charming and brilliant in its own conception and it reminds me a lot of all sorts of last man on earth situations. Robert Pattinson plays Monty who of course we know started out in films as Cedric Diggory in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire back in 2005, before he ended up sparkling into the character of Edward Cullen in the Twilight Saga. He went on to do Cosmopolis for David Cronenberg, and I think he was in the lead of that with Juliette Binoche as well, and David Michaud's dystopian western the rover back in 2014 i thought pattinson did an excellent compact and intense performance in that one robert egger's psychological horror film also has him in it too so lots of interesting indie works the haunted airman uh, which was a psychological thriller on the bbc and he was also in Werner herzog's adaptation queen of the desert playing alongside Nicole Kidman and James Franco. And he recently turned up in The Lost City of Z as well. You have seen him recently in Christopher Nolan's Tenet, and also, of course, he is the new Batman in Matt Reeves' film to be upcoming soon. Rather appropriately and off-puttingly, perhaps, he's also got an asteroid named after him, which is entirely in context of this film. 246789 Pattinson. (laughs) Well, his character appears right up front, and his solitary presence on board Ship 7, save for his infant daughter, signals that something has gone very wrong indeed. A tip of the visor by the way, to the director for maintaining dramatic tension throughout the story, as we know in advance because of this that it's all going to go pear-shaped, or perhaps in the context of the black hole, Mobius strip-shaped, Shades of Apollo 13. Pattinson plays the trapped astronaut and now single father with nuance and understanding and just the right amount of frazzled but loving paternal tenderness. I found it a very affecting and believable performance, and I don't think it ventures into that more standard territory of, for example, Brad Pitt looking for his long-lost space dad in Ad Astra. It's not a broken family, which makes a change and something I'm always going on about on Zero G. Now, playing opposite him, amongst others, is Juliette Binoche, playing the dodgy Dr. Dibbs. She hasn't got a lot of genre credits, but she did co-star in Gareth Edwards' 2014 Godzilla, and also as another character in Ghost in the Shell in that live-action adaptation in 2017. Binoche plays the sort of internally conflicted, externally manifested role that Eva Green often relishes, although she admittedly dialed her usual shtick back a bit for her own space movie, Proxima. It's right, but also so wrong, to say that Binoche has chemistry with the other actors. The character's chemistry comes with warnings and more often than not sedatives. Added to the ranks of unholy medical practitioners beloved by cautionary science fiction tales. I think that there's more dimension to Binoche's portrayal. 
in both performance and in the way that her character is scripted, with some provocative, erotic and sensual subtext, along with what seems to be some determinedly wrong maternal instincts that she takes way, way too far. And at this point I pause to again underline the film's rating on the single-disc Madman distributed DVD I saw it on, MA15+, plus Restricted, with strong themes of sex and violence. This is definitely not a Star Wars film, although you might perhaps portray it as a startling blend of 2001 and, say, a clockwork orange. Anyway, High Life does include free acts of rape, none of them, by the way, turned into acts of stylized erotic voyeurism. At least, I didn't think so. And fair enough if you don't want to view that any time at all, let alone in these especially challenging times we're living through. At the same time, these are not gratuitous and are only in context with the story, as horrific as that undoubtedly is. And oddly enough, the film's non-violent sex scenes, they don't play particularly erotically either, though they do serve to show that these poor, miserable folks certainly do have a lot of frustrated issues to work out. And, oh, I don't know if this is actually a warning or not, but expect body fluids in this film, lots of them. Claire Denis uses them in her films as metaphors and both as practical expressions of repression and oppression and specifically to emphasise human rights violations here as well as somewhat discordantly to illustrate functional ecologies even if they are artificial and lofted high into space. Amongst others in the cast are Andre Benjamin, playing the character of Tcherny, and he's an American rapper and singer and so on. Doesn't get to do any of that in this film. Not exactly stunt casting, though, as he does a little good turn here. Uh, Mia Goth plays the character of Boyce. She's an English actress and model, and we've seen her before in Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac and the survivalist thriller in 2015, the psychological horror film A Cure for Wellness, and she also had a supporting role in the remake of Suspiria. Also popping up is Victor Banerjee, playing an Indian professor. Now, we've seen him in a lot of films, if you happen to watch Indian movies. Particularly, he has worked with Satyajit Ray, who is also a notable writer of science fiction. Check him out, too. And Jessie Ross shines as the character of Willow. Well, she's one of the actresses playing the, the character, uh, because Willow starts out as an infant in this movie. And we also have Scarlett Lindsay and Joni Brower and Johan Bartlitz playing the newborns and the toddlers and so on seen throughout the film. They steal the show. They're little kids. That's what they do. <laughs> if this film had dogs in it, then probably no actor would want to appear opposite them at all, lest they, wait a minute, it does actually have dogs. Oh dear. Well, actually a bit more costuming credit for the babies, clearly awkwardly cobbled together clothing recycled from the adults' prisoner uniforms. Imagine if the last man on or off Earth wasn't alone but had to cope with being a single parent as well. And you kind of get where they're coming at from there. Nice one, Shrewsbury, the costumer of the film. Now, on the subject of space procedural, how do you keep the prisoners on mission? 
Well, there's a pretty ruthless answer to that question, uh, which ultimately can be worked around a little, even if it does leave a bit of wriggle room. I'm glad that they did take the time to explain it, though. It shows that the writers cared, even if there are a couple of other plot black holes that you will no doubt discover as you watch High Life. Now, you'll notice that I kept referencing other films, too. And that can be a signal for a work that feels overly derivative. But in this case, High Life doesn't play that way. It is its own unique, if disturbing, film. I struggled a bit with this one, but I thought that it was worth the challenge. Claire Denis has created a remarkable science fiction film that is challenging, complex, and also very seriously primal. You have been cautioned or warned. Proceed at your own risk or not, as the case may be. It's a single disc on Apple TV, rated MA, 15+, restricted, strong themes, sex and violence. I got it on single disc DVD, but you can also stream it for renting on Apple TV. In terms of Zero G's Yeah, Nah, Maybe rating, well, I go with Yeah, with the reservations and caveats that I've made along this extraordinary space journey intense. Perhaps a little bit more relaxing is our outtrack for today, which is called Willow, and it's not entirely a lullaby for the character of the baby in the film, but it does feature, once again, the composer and musician Stuart A. Staples and his band Tender Sticks, and also the actor Robert Pattinson, who has a sideline in working on some of his soundtracks, and also has a bit of the musician muse about him too. It's not a bad little track, this one. So this is from the soundtrack of Claire Denis' High Life, which we've been talking about here on Zero G. Or I should say, I've been talking about it today. Our co-host Megan McHugh bears no blame for this ramble. <laughs> she is on a well-deserved break today. I'd also like to thank our podcaster, Kayla Larson, once again for all of the wonderful work that she does, making Zero G come to life, revived in its zombie form as a podcast at rrr.org.au on free triple R FM. Coming up next is Joe Bernatic with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.